Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Let's go ahead and get started. It's going to be a short class tonight because of sign-up night, but don't worry. It'll get longer. You won't worry about it, will you? No. But... uh, Let's see, you're the only one taking it for just one, right? The rest, everybody else is taking it for both. Okay. you taking just... You, okay, you, you two are just taking... Okay, all right. Well, my name's Alan Schaefer. I'll be teaching the class. Um, my phone numbers are up there. My email is up there if you need to get a hold of me. And uh, actually, all the notes I will be using are going to go out onto the web if anybody wants to get on the web and get them. Um, I'll put the web address up here. I don't know if they're there yet. My brother's putting them on for me. And uh, he's been pretty busy, but... Yeah. There's the uh, homepage. And uh, the Thessalonians and Timothy notes are going to be out there as as I write them and get them up there, get them uploaded to the site. But we're going to be going through Thessalonians, and you have the schedule there in front of you, hopefully. And it's just going to be a verse-by-verse study all the way through the book. The only requirements for this class is just doing the reading, and I'll have a, just a final test the last day of the class. But mainly it's just a lot of reading. Um, you've, got the, well, you've got the book in front of you to read. Um, it's by Morris. It's a pretty good little commentary. I've been reading it as I go along. So I think you'll find it easy to use in that. Um, so with that, let's just get on into the course itself and start looking at the First Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll start in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this night and the ability to study your word. We thank you for this great opportunity. There's a lot of places in the world where this is not possible. And uh, we thank you that you've given us your word and you've given us the ability to understand it. And we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, before getting into the book of 1 Thessalonians itself, I want to go back to Acts and look at the starting of the book of the church at Thessalonica, where it began, and that's down in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 16, Paul begins his uh, missionary journey. Um, it's his second missionary journey. And... Uh, he visits, visits the churches that he found in Asia Minor. That's the churches Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Antioch of um, Phrygia, or Pisidian Antioch. Goes over to the coast, makes his way on over to the coast, and then he gets the, the uh, Macedonian call. Goes over to Macedonia. He preaches in Philippi, which is really the whole of um, almost all of Acts chapter 16, starting right around verse 6. And that's the first church founded in the um, continent of Europe. And uh, if you remember what happened there, he was doing really well until the girl with the demonized spirit shows up. 
he cast the spirit out of her and that causes all uh, trouble to break loose. The masters, of course, made a lot of money on this woman. And I used to have a problem trying to figure out why in the world uh, Paul would cast the demon out of this girl because evidently the demon was saying, this is the servant of the Most High God, hear him, and that's probably good press. Until I started thinking what would happen when Paul left the city. Who would the people turn to now? The girl. The girl. And do you think she'd tell the truth then? Probably not. So uh, Paul's dealing with this demon was a, was a very necessary thing. And of course what happened there is uh, the people got mad. They dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrates who beat them and put them into prison. And by the way, uh, the magistrates didn't know this, but that was illegal for them to do. Paul was a Roman citizen, and they could have gotten deep, deep, deep trouble for that. Um, but they didn't find that out until the next day. Um, but you, you couldn't beat a Roman citizen without due process, and they did that. And uh, the bottom line is they, because of persecution, everything had to leave Philippi, and they went over to... Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Thessalonica was a major city um, in that time. And the places they passed around the Ignatian Highway, that was the major trade route that ran from Rome over through Asia Minor down into Palestine. It was on the Ignatian Way. And uh, he was just following this like major artery. It's like a modern uh, interstate that went across through there. And uh, Thessalonica was actually one of the major cities of Macedonia. Macedonia was the province that he was in. And uh, he went there and it says, uh, as his custom was, he went unto them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He went in and immediately began preaching Christ in the synagogue. Of course, that's where all the Jews are at. Now, what happens then? Well, you have uh, various responses. For some were persuaded. Um, some of the Jews, not a lot of them, but some of them. A great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So there was a great um, response. And this is after only three weeks of preaching. It's important to remember this because when we get in the first Thessalonians and we start looking down through his uh, response to this church because uh, what had happened is after he had left some people came in and said well Paul just he's trying to take advantage of you he's really not sincere he's really just in this for the money and Paul is going to go back and remind them wait a minute you know what we were when we showed up you know what happened. It's not a secret. And that's not the character of someone who's out for your money, out to take advantage of you. But for three weeks, he reasoned with them, and he had a great response. But what happened in verse 5 is there's persecution. The Jews who did not believe became envious and took up some evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Jason evidently is where he was staying and got the whole city in an uproar. Um, I like the way it says in the King James, they went out and got some base men from the marketplace. They got the thugs. They went out and got some thugs and uh, mercenaries and got them all riled up and was going to pay them to cause trouble. And why did they do that? Because they were envious. Paul had a response, and they didn't like that. But when they did not find them at Jason, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have now come here too. 
Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Now, is that true? Was Paul a political... No. No, he wasn't at all. Paul was not out to turn the Roman Empire into some great uh, revolutionary battlefield. No. Um, Jesus was a king, but not of this world. Not a king of this world. I'm glad that's yours and not mine. Um, and what happened is it troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. The rulers, this was a, by the way, Thessalonica was a free city, which basically meant that as long as they didn't cause trouble, they could pretty much run their city their own way. Rome liked to do that. Rome said, look, don't cause us any trouble and you can do your own thing. Just pay your taxes, keep the peace, and we won't bother you and you don't bother us. And uh, there was great pride in a city that had their own rulers this way. This was a free city. And, of course, when the rulers hear this, they're troubled. Why? Because if the Rome gets wind of this, there could be some trouble. So when they'd taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They took a bond, basically saying, if you cause trouble, we keep this money that was given. And it says, verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, it may have been that this bond, part of the condition was that Paul had to leave the city. He left under persecution. Um, so what happened is, after about three weeks, now, you know, they argue back and forth, was it three weeks, four weeks, or whatever. Um, I, it wasn't a long time. We know he reasoned for three Sabbaths. Now, whether he was there for a couple of Sabbaths where he didn't reason and that, you know, People kill trees and argue about that. Don't worry about it. He was there for a short period of time. It wasn't a long, long ministry. And he got ran out, went down to Berea, which is the next city. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. A little different reaction there. When Paul showed up and began to preach, they said, well, let's see what, the, let's see what it says. And they started comparing it. And it said, many of them believed, and not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So again, you have this major response. And what you see is the church is being formed here. It's being formed of Jews and some of the devout Gentiles. Now, these Gentiles were, were people that liked to hang around. They were not Jews, but they liked to hang around the Jews because of their moral character, their high moral stand. Um, because it was a pretty pagan culture. I mean, it's pretty debauched in those days. And there were some of these Gentiles that liked the moral, the moral standards that Judaism had. So they would hang around the Jews. and hang. They were called God-fearers. Cornelius was one of these. He was a God-fearer. Um, he was a devout person. And you have a great response here. But now what happens? Well, the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached in Berea. They came there and stirred up the crowd. So now you've got... They're, they're exporting their rabble down there. They send the mercenaries down to Berea to stir them up. So immediately the brethren sent Paul away again. So he keeps, you know, comes in, preaches, builds a church, and they send him away because the persecution comes along to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. Silas and Timothy evidently did not stir the crowds up like Paul did. So Silas and Timothy remained, and Paul went alone to Athens. He went down to Athens by himself. And then we have the account here of the um, Mars Hill where he dealt with the philosophers in Athens. And then after Athens, he made his way over to Corinth. Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. 
and start here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now immediately you see Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So when Paul wrote this book, evidently, Silvanus, that's another word for Silas, that's a, one of his names, and Timothy was with Paul. Now when did this happen? Well, it happened when Paul made his way over to Corinth. Because Paul made his way over to Corinth, he was rejoined by Silas and Timothy in Corinth. And when he was rejoined, he immediately sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. I want you to go find out how things are going in Thessalonica. We'll see this as we go down through the text. And I want you to report back. So Timothy goes back to Thessalonica. He comes back and reports to Paul how things are going on. And that's when Paul sits down and writes this letter. So Paul is writing with these two other men at his side. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The general um, introduction that Paul uses in just about all of his epistles. He's writing back to the Thessalonians. Now, the, the date this was written, we know, was pretty close to about A.D. 51-52. We know that because Paul um, was brought before the governor of Corinth, and we know that the man they named as governor there was only governor from A.D. 51-52. to So if Paul was brought before the governor, and he was only there for a year, we can pretty much tag when Paul was in Corinth, which then gives us an understanding of when this book was written. He says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul says, I'm always praying about you. And he uses the we there, not only himself, but Timothy and Silas. We're always praying for you, and we're always making mention of you in our prayers. And one of the interesting things that I found as I look through Paul's letters, he's always praying for the churches. I mean, he's all the time. He's praying for them. And he's not praying that, uh, you know, the persecution will let up or that their physical problems will be taken care of or they'll prosper materially. He's praying for their spiritual growth and maturity. He's always praying for that. And he says, I remember three things about you. I remember without ceasing and that's referring to his prayer, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Um, I know your election by God. Now, you know, one of the things that um, you're going to find as we work our way through these books is that notion of election comes up. And I know there's a lot of people that debate back and forth. We've had some fun debates back and forth on it. Huh? We already crossed it over on the other side. So, so where are you at now? Oh, we, we believe in election all the way. All right, good. All right. All right. You've made it. You made. You've made it. You've made it to the promised land. Oh, he was an Armenian. The day was long. We used to fight all the time. Saw the light. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Um. I understand election as being God chose me in eternity past. Why? Because he wanted to. That's the bottom line. He just wanted to. It's not because I did anything or I was deserving of anything. That's what it's grace is. Grace by definition is you don't deserve it. Um, that doesn't mean God's not fair. He is fair. Um, doesn't mean he's not just. He is just. By definition, God is fair. God is just. Um, but 
however you take that, however you understand, and I want to get into the nuts and bolts of election, however you understand election, Paul is saying here, that the point he's making here, I know your election. And how do I know your election? Well, it's because of something that is evident in your life. See, see, one of the big arguments that people say, well, how do you know you're elect? Well, Paul tells you how you know you're elect here. He tells them how he knows this church is elect. He says, I know you were chosen by God because of three things. Number one, your work of faith. Your work of faith. So you've got this, and, and this is something you can look at in your own life and ask. You know, people get, am I elect? Am I in? Am I not in? But, you know, don't worry about that. Don't worry about whether you're in or out or whatever. You need to ask yourself, what are the fruits in my life? And if the fruits of my life stack up with the character of one who is elect, I'm in. That's the bottom line. However you understand election. And what Paul is saying here is, I know your election in eternity past because of your work of faith. All right. Uh, the idea behind work of faith here is because of their belief, their faith. And what is faith? Faith is just believing God. I mean, that's the bottom line, just to believe God. And the question is, and this, this is something you need to think through a little bit, where does that faith come from? It's a gift of God. You know, why is it you believe in a place you've never seen, in a, in a being you've never talked to, in angels that you've never talked to, at least I don't think any of you have talked to angels, and a person who died on a cross that you've never witnessed. You believe in a book that's written by 40 guys over 1,600 years. You believe it's inerrant. And not only that, you stake your entire eternal destiny on it. Why do you do that? Because it's logical? It's not logical, is it? It's illogical. But why? I have faith. Where does that come from? Is it, did I wake up one day and say, I think I'll pick, I'll believe the Bible. That's what I'll believe. I'll believe that one. No, it's a gift of God. God is the one who grants us the faith to believe. And although God grants us the faith, there is a component on our part where we believe. So the question is, where did you get the faith to believe God, you got it from God. Where do you get that? It's a gift. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. You don't get to heaven and say, well, I'm here because I believe God. That's boasting. That detracts from God. It detracts from His glory. Ephesians 2.8.9, by the way, says it is the gift of God. And grammatically, you can make a strong case, a strong argument that not only is the grace the gift of God, but the faith to believe is the gift of God. There's another verse in Acts, it might be Acts 17, where it talks about God granting repentance to salvation. It's not like that person repents. Maybe God will grant them repentance. So it, it comes from God. And Paul says, I know your election because... You have faith. I, I've seen that. I've, I've observed that. And faith here, to understand when he says work of faith, linking work with faith 
is a very important thing to understand here. Because when we think of faith, what do we think of? Some abstract belief. But what Paul is saying is your faith in God does something now. It works its way out. It's like what James says. You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. I don't see faith unless you do something. Unless you work it out. And that's what Paul is saying. I've seen your faith worked out. And not only that, I've seen your labor of love. I've seen you work hard. And the love here is that self-sacrificial love. Where does that come from? God. God is a source of love in the life of the believer. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4 talks about that. He said, I've seen your labor of love, and then I've seen your patience of hope. The idea of patience of hope is referring to that which will be ours someday. Hope in the Bible is never this, well, maybe I'll get it, maybe I won't, hopefully I will. It's a certainty. And way to understand it maybe is a present, um, a, a present certainty of a future reality. And the three characteristics that Paul then shows on these is number one, I know you're elect because of your work of faith. You have faith to believe and I've seen it evidenced in your life by what you've done. And he's going to talk about what they did later on. You're going to see this later on in this chapter. He says what they did specifically. He said, I've seen your labor of love. I've seen how you've sacrificed for other Christians. I've seen the work that you have done, your labor. And the idea of labor there is working to exhaustion. I mean, being tired. And then he says, I've seen your hope in what? The future reality of your salvation. What is the blessed hope of the Christian? Heaven. The return of Christ. He said, I've seen that. I've observed, I've seen how you've patiently waited for the return of Christ. And we have that patient. The blessed hope. Titus talks about the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. So there's a blessed hope. Paul says, I've seen that. And because of that, I know your election by God. And then he fleshes this out a little more. In verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power, the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul says, I also know your election because when I showed up, what happened? The power of God was evident. The power of God was evident. Um, our gospel, the good news, did not come to you in just a bunch of words. I didn't come up and show another, and just give you another philosophy. And by the way, that's what you had in those days, especially in Greece, is you had these wandering philosophers, and they would go from town to town to town, peddling their own little spin of philosophy. And they would go into a town and, and spin their thing and, and collect money or collect things from people and go to the next town. And you had these just wandering experts to go from town to town. And Paul says, I'm not another one of those guys that just came in, dumped a bunch of words on you, took some money, and went to the next town. He said, my gospel, my good news did not come to you only with a bunch of words, but in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. It was a powerful message that did something. What did it do? It transformed them. He says, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. 
Now this starts to hint at one of the problems that Paul was dealing with. That namely is that there are these men that went around that, or that came in and said, well, you know, Paul's just another one of these philosopher guys. They're, they're wandering around and, you know, love him and leave him. He's gone. He'll never be back. He doesn't care about you. All he wanted was a few favors. He wanted some money from you or wanted your support. He's gone. He doesn't care about you. He's down trying to get the next city snookered. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, you know what it was like when I showed up. I didn't bring you a bunch of words. I brought the power of the gospel which transformed you. And you became, how was that? Six, six. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, what Paul's trying to sit, tell them there is that when you listen to this word and you were transformed, you understand it was with a lot of affliction. I mean, you went through the ringer to believe this. And by the way, that, that takes me, you know, just I got to put a plug back in for election. That takes you back to the election business. If a person, if God is touching a person's heart, there's nothing that will keep them from the gospel. You can't keep them away. You can't put up enough roadblocks. They'll, they'll burrow through them. They'll climb. They, they won't stop. All right? Because it's not them. It's God working in them. They don't care what the cost is. There is, to them, it costs their life. That's the way it is. So, so what? They don't count their own lives here. And Paul says, you remember what happened. And what happened? Well, he got run out of town. Three weeks, he got run out of town. The whole city was in an uproar over this guy. And he's saying, you received the word in much affliction. That is, you received it under very bad and difficult circumstances. You still received it with joy of the Holy Spirit. The idea there is where does the joy come from? The Holy Spirit. By the way, the idea of joy here, their circumstances were pretty rotten. But they had joy. Where's the source of joy? The Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And it came from the Holy Spirit. So even in the midst of their persecutions, they had joy so that you became examples to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now Macedonia, if you look at the Greek um, nation at that point, Macedonia was the northern half, Achaia was the southern half. Achaia included Athens and Corinth and all that. It was just the Roman provincial names. He's saying in all of Greece, the whole area of Greece, your word, the word of the Lord, has sounded forth. The idea of sounded, that was blow a trumpet as a loud noise. He said, you've blared out the message of Christ all over Greece, from the north to the south. <coughs> you became an example. An example in great difficulty, great trial, great persecution. Because it wasn't the Thessalonian believers who were coming up with the faith and coming up with the endurance. It was God who was granting them that endurance. <clears throat> I like reading about, the old, about many of the martyrs, and it's interesting to see some of the things they've gone through. Sometimes, you know, I read that and I sit back and say, could I have done the same thing? I mean, what, have, what, what, what would I do if I knew that tomorrow I'd be burned at the stake? And all I had to do to keep from doing that was just to deny Christ. And I could go free. Could I do it? And the only assurance I get when I think of that is 
if I had to do that, God would give me the grace I needed. I don't have that grace now. I will tell you that. You know, I, well, you know, burn at the stake tonight. Well, you know, Christ will forgive me, but I can't be unburned at the stake. You know, um, but when you get, when you when you're faced with that, God gives you the grace. It's 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 a it's a gift of, of the Spirit. And Paul is saying, you know, when I look at you people, and I see what you're going through, I know your election of God because of what you're going through. It sort of goes back to the parable of the soils. Remember, he got the seed thrown out. It falls on good soil, and, and, and it brings forth fruit. And some, some falls on that, that stony ground with a thin veneer of dirt over it. And it springs up, and you think it's there, but what did Christ say about that? Not enough depth. And when, when the heat and the persecution and the trials come along, what happens? It dries up, withers instead. And Paul is saying, you know, I know you're your election because you're sticking it out. When the trials and the persecution and the testing come along, you're not bailing out. You're not leaving. That was his great fear, by the way. When we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 next week, he said, my great fear was that you would be bailing out. I was scared to death that you would be leaving the, um, the, the, the message that I gave you, that, that it would all be in vain, that my, my work there was fruitless. It didn't mean anything. But he says, no, that's not been the case because you're persevering. God gives you the ability to persevere. He's the one that holds you. And I, I think that's great. It, you know, if I, if, I don't know how you can be a Christian and say, well, I'm saved by faith, but then it's up to me to keep it. How do I keep it? I can't. I, I can't keep it. I can't. God keeps it for me. God's the one that's enabling me to hold on. God is the one that's giving me the strength to hang in there. It's not from me, because if it was me, I'd be like Peter, right? Book. Peter says, yeah, everybody will deny you. They'll, they'll run the other way. Lord, I will be there. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. And Christ is saying, yeah, right. Cock will crow three times, and you'll, you're gone. Why? Peter was depending on himself. You ain't going to cut it. Depend on yourself. He's saying it came to you in power and I know that because of that you are truly redeemed and your faith has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. Paul says, I don't need to tell anybody about your faith because they already know it. So I walk up to somebody and say, hey, you hear about those Thessalonian believers up there? Wow, look what's happening. Paul's saying, I don't have to tell anybody. Because it's all known. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned from God, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's the major thing. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. I, I do not believe it's possible for you to be a Christian and have no difference. No change in your life. I, I don't believe that. You may struggle, you may have sin in your life that you're dealing with, and, and some of us may struggle for years with sin, but there is a difference, there is a change, there is a turning from. And Paul is saying, you turn from your idols, you turn from that idolatry that you were part of, and you turn from that to serve the living and true God. And how, where'd the power to do that come from? What turns a person from idols to serve the living and true God? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that does it. All you do is proclaim the word. God takes care of the results. And it says here, you turn from God, you turn to God from idols. And they had idols all over the place in that culture. I mean, you name it, they had it. They believed it. That's interesting. You can be anything in that culture, just don't be a Christian. It's sort of like today, I think. You can believe anything today, you're just not allowed to be a Christian and think you're actually right. I mean, that's not politically correct. He said, you turn from idols to serve the living God, and then this thing, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You turn from God to God from idols, and, and you're waiting for his Son from heaven. You're waiting for Christ to return. And see, this links back into verse 3. If you want to see their work of faith and labor of love, you got verses 6 through Verse 9, you want to see their hope and patience, you look at verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven. The constant expectation of the early church was that Christ could come at any time. They lived that way. That's the way they, they operated. And he says, you're going to wait for his son, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, whenever you see the wrath, when you have the the in front of the wrath, I think you can make a strong case that that's not referring to the tribulation like I've heard this used all the time. Well, this is talking about the tribulation. No, it's not. It's talking about eternal wrath. What's eternal wrath? Lake of fire. That's the wrath that we're delivered from. He says he delivers us from the wrath to come. And how does he deliver us? Through faith in Christ. We're not going to pay the ultimate penalty for sin because Christ paid it for us. And so what you see in this first chapter is Paul is reminding them. He's really rejoicing with them and saying, look, I know. And I'm, what you see, and we see this in chapter 2 where he responds a little bit. He is thrilled to death after hearing from Timothy that this church was on the ball. He's thrilled out of his mind because he was scared to death that maybe, maybe, they, maybe they abandoned the faith. Maybe, maybe, it was, maybe I was just a dream. Maybe they were the shallow soil of Matthew. And he sends Timothy up there and Timothy comes back and says, Paul, you wouldn't believe what's going on there. I mean, they are growing. They are serving the Lord. They are loving him. In spite of all the tribulation and trial and all the pressure that they have, they are they are standing firm. And we're going to find out what that pressure is in chapter 2 where it talks about the Jews that want to destroy the church and the Gentiles who are bringing pressure on these new believers. And the thing is to understand here, how old are these believers? Three weeks. You know, you think, well, you know, until I've, until I've been a Christian for 30 years, I don't have any maturity. Well, I mean, th there's a, an element of truth to that is we are to mature as we grow in the Lord. But these people are only three weeks old. And yet you see God's power in them. And the word of God is sounding forth over that whole area. All that whole nation of Greece, really. And all the way into the Roman Empire. I mean, you're on the Ignatian Highway. And you've got caravans and everything going in and out. It's going to spread all over the place. And you see that. Well, next week we'll pick up and look at chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to slow down a little bit um, when we get into chapter 4 and 5, so don't worry.
we'll try to work a little ahead so we can slow down. And there's some really deep meat in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we're really going to spend some time on. But that's just the overview of the book right there. Any questions, comments, any? I was in preach mode tonight. Hopefully you'll ask more questions. Are you going to do the uh, time that we did uh, last year? Come in a little early, like 6 o'clock. Well, I'm going to probably keep it at 6.30 because after 6.30 and 7.30, then I got another, yeah, and they're going to be done at 8.30, so, all right. Okay, well, let's close in prayer, and next week we'll pick up with 1 Thessalonians 2. Father, thanks for the night and for the opportunity to study the first chapter of this book. We've just skimmed the surface, but I pray that uh, what we've seen here we'll think about. And Father, I just thank you for this opportunity of studying for the semester to come in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.